Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in this series focused on D-Day and more specifically recently, Omaha Beach, We've talked a lot about junior leaders, NCOs and first and second lieutenants that really help to lead the charge off the beach and move inland. But we're going to make a jump. And today we're talking about Brigadier General Norman Cota, the assistant division commander of the 29th Infantry Division, who was one of the highest ranking officers to come ashore that day. You know, as we look back through history, we tend to focus more on leaders. And it's interesting if you look at something like Omaha Beach, where you know, 50 plus percent of those who landed were junior enlisted. Yet we don't have anywhere near the same amount of stories of those folks, you know, the soldiers that had to step over their buddies killed right in front of them to get off the landing craft, or that had to run across the beach to drag a wounded soldier to safety, or maybe were even the first into a German bunker to clear it once they got off the beaches. You'd think those stories would make up 50% of what we have, and they don't. And I think over time, it's that history is kind of consolidated with leaders, especially as we get further from events. That's not me saying it's the right thing to do, but I think it's something we have done maybe unintentionally. You know, as an example, if I think back to my history books in middle school and high school, and we're looking at the Second World War, the American entry into this conflict might get, you know, a section. Pearl Harbor might get a paragraph. How the heck do you tell the story of Pearl Harbor in a paragraph, right? You have to summarize. You have to go super high level. I mean, if we're looking at the American entry to the Second World War, to the Second World War, Congress declared war. But I can't name the Speaker of the House. I have no idea. I mean, if you showed me his name, I, I wouldn't recognize it. We consolidate these things, right? If we're talking politics in the Second World War, then it's FDR. Just the further we get from these events, I think it's more and more consolidated with leaders. Now, if we're talking about leaders on Omaha Beach, it's hard to not look at Brigadier General Norman Cota. Before he joined the 29th Infantry Division, he took part in the planning for D-Day. And he was known as a you know pragmatic leader. He pushed back a lot, which is interesting in those circles. You know, he's surrounded by other general officers, not just from the United States, but from around the world. There's a lot of incentive to, you know, agree with everybody. Just go along, especially as a one star. One of the major ways or one of the major areas he pushed back was the idea of daytime landings. Coda wanted to land at night. You know, we on D-Day, we would land after the sun came up. And the idea there, or one of the ideas was that this would allow the Navy and the Air Force to be able to see their targets to really help with the pre-landing bombardment. Coda's argument was that it would be less of a risk and we would have a greater chance of you know, securing a foothold if we hit the shore at night. Now, it's not clear cut, right? I mean, there's a lot of challenges there as well. The landing craft, how are they going to see the obstacles as they try to come ashore or try to get anywhere near shore? Once the soldiers hit the beach, how are they going to link up under the dark? I mean, there's, there's certainly going to be some light but linking up with your unit's going to be a challenge. And what about if they don't know where they actually landed? I mean, as it happened, soldiers landed all across Omaha Beach. Very few landed in the sectors they were supposed to. So if they land at night, it, it likely complicates that, right? But it's an interesting thing to look back on and wonder about. I mean, 
landing in daylight hours, as we know, the shore bombardment really didn't do much at all to the German defenses. And in many cases, it was a, a slaughter. What would have happened if we landed at night? I can't say for sure that it would have been better, but it's hard to imagine the losses would have been worse. But something for another day, just something interesting to think about. Additionally, Coda was known to give it straight to his men. You know, as they were on the ships crossing the English Channel, you know, in a few hours, the first men loading landing craft to go ashore, Coda sat down with his leaders and said, quote, we must improvise. We must carry on. We must not lose our heads. He didn't think the plan would go as drawn at all. Kind of the idea of no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And this is another interesting thing to think about. If you're on the receiving end of that, what do you want to hear? Because other commanders were very optimistic, telling their troops, you're just going to walk inland, you know, form a file, walk off the landing craft and and reassemble once you're behind the German defenses. The bunkers are going to be knocked out. They're not going to have the fighting spirit or the will to fight if there's anybody alive at all. And that made it all the way down to the lowest ranks as well. You have stories of soldiers coming ashore thinking that there should be no defenses and realizing that not a single shell even hit the beach. If you're on the receiving end of that, if you're getting ready to take part in the Normandy invasion, what do you want to hear? Because I can see it both ways. If I'm climbing down those rope ladders into the landing craft in the dark on the morning of June 6, 1944, there's something to be said for going in with confidence and saying, we're going to walk right over these guys. The Navy's done their job. And it's easy to understand that. You're looking out at one of the largest armadas ever assembled. Incredible firepower. It never hurts to go into something confident, right? That's that's That can be a positive. Or would you rather have it, in this case, straight to the point, honest? I mean, Coda was was giving his assessment. It turned out to be accurate, but... Would you rather go in expecting that, knowing that all of the plans, all of the rehearsals, all of the training you've done may be out the window when you hit the beach? I mean, that's one of the things that builds confidence in the military, right? You you rehearse, 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 rehearse until it's muscle memory. If you're loading those landing craft, getting ready to hit the shore, and your leader right before you do so says, got to be able to improvise as soon as you get there, I think for some people that might cause panic. Anyways, something to think about. What would you rather hear? If you're getting ready to assault the shore. Now, Coda could have stayed back. In fact, there's probably some arguments that he should have. As a general officer, he could have done a lot of work, maybe really, really important work, helping to coordinate the effort, the resupply, the evacuation, the reinforcements from a ship out at sea. But that's not how Brigadier General Norman Coda led. He was going in with a second wave headed towards the dog white sector. The second wave at Omaha Beach was no joke. I mean, something that's interesting here in the Dog White sector, the unit that was set to land at Dog White missed. So when Coda and his wave went in, they were the first to land at Dog White. So we'll call it the second wave because they took off about an hour after the first. But realistically, they were some of the first people ashore in this sector. They're under fire on the approach, as were most landing craft. And as they're heading in, Coda's craft hits something. It's one of the 
German obstacles placed in an area that was you know, exposed at low tide, but as the tide started to come in, it was underwater. This obstacle was tipped with a mine, as quite a few were, and Coda braced for the explosion. If you can, right? You know what's going to happen. Just wait for it. Imagine time standing still. And the mine falls off. Doesn't detonate. This was a problem that the Germans had with some of these defenses. Not all these mines were designed to be underwater, and in a lot of cases, they were. So there were waterproofing efforts, surely, up and down the coast, but not all of them held. And in this case, fortunately for General Coda and for a lot of people on D-Day, that mine didn't explode. They got a second lease on life. They continued to push towards shore, and the landing craft let them off with about 50 yards to go. So General Coda, just like everyone else, is going to wade through the water onto Omaha Beach. He moves inland under a little bit of a smoke screen. You know, we've talked before in some of these other stories, the luck of where you land. You know, some landed in the wrong sector and it was horrible. Others landed kind of between strong points and had a little bit of a gap to thread the needle. And it's, you just don't know. Landing in your sector, another sector, maybe a little bit to the east or the west was life or death. I think it's safe to say that General Coda's landing was lucky. There were some grass fires that had started as the engagement kicked off, and it obscured some of their movement ashore, which is crazy. I mean, that, that's, in the, that's in the category of just, just lucky. Coda and his men, or his team at this point, are able to move up towards a timber seawall, and this area protects them from direct fire, but not from mortars and artillery that are raking the beach. In fact, while they're huddled along this seawall, we're going to get into a couple things here that are, that are interesting, but you know, this is the midst of the fight. You know, we're talking about the second wave. This is a general officer. He's going to lead the charge on Omaha, on Dog White. I mean, this is crazy. The, as they're hunkered down behind this, this seawall, trying to figure out what their next move is going to be, there's a man right by General Coda that's killed by shrapnel. And it's described as a piece of shrapnel the size of the head of a shovel. That's huge. I mean, that's cut a person in half size shrapnel. Coda's right in the mix. He is taking the same risk as his men and won't stop there. A fun story to kind of tell, uh, to show the type of leader, maybe, that General Coda is. One of many. We're going to get into a few here. But I promised a few General Coda, General Coda quotes so here's another fun one. There was a private also stacked up on this seawall named William Stump. Stump was shaking, nervous, um, as you could expect, having made it ashore on Omaha. He wanted a smoke, but his matches were wet. So he tugged on the jacket of the man next to him and said, do you have a light? That man next to him was General Coda. He rolled over and the private freaked out, said, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. To which Coda responded, that's okay, son. We're all here for the same reason. He lit the cigarette and they got about their business. I love that. Right in the midst of the fight, just uh, that's awesome. Now, across Omaha Beach, units were mixed all over the place, right? Whether they landed in the right place, the wrong, or in this case, didn't even hit the right sector. And we're going to hit on this more in a later episode, but the fifth Rangers would come ashore at Dog White. They wouldn't go to Point Du Hawk as was originally planned. And as they're huddled along this seawall, General Coda turns to 
the battalion commander, Max Schneider, and says, hey, what outfit is this? Schneider responds, the 5th Rangers. So Coda famously says, well, God damn it. If you're Rangers, then get up there and lead the way. That phrase has gone down as the motto to this day of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Now, as they're huddled behind this seawall, Coda's trying to figure out a way to motivate his men. I mean, he's not there just to observe, right? He, at one point, will get up and kind of walk up and down the beach. Now, it's not like a leisurely Sunday stroll, but he's exposing himself to German fire. And the idea that he's trying to show here is, hey, if a general can do it, we can do it. Eventually, he identifies a good path forward through some wire. He directs a Bangalore torpedo or soldiers to lay Bangalore torpedoes, which were five-foot poles packed with explosives. They could be attached to one another, so a five-foot charge could turn into a 20-foot charge or more. These would be slid underneath the wire obstacles, detonated, and it would you know clear a path. As they cleared this path, the first man got up and ran through it to the next covered and concealed position, and he's shot. Now, this isn't like in the movies when somebody gets shot and falls down and they're dead. This was nasty. Warfare's nasty. He was not killed outright, but he was mortally wounded. And he laid there, out of reach of his men, under fire, screaming for his mother as he bled to death. That is what the soldiers around General Coda were watching. They still have to move forward, but after you see that, hear that, what's next? Well, what's next? What's next is that Brigadier General Coda, at 51 years old, stands up, runs through the gap in the wire to the next covered position, showing the way forward. The men see that and get up right after him and do the same. Now, from there, Coda finds a, his team finds a German communications trench line. Remember all these trenches connecting the various strong points up and down the beach. They jump in and they decide they need to attack a nearby emplacement. So Coda is, it's this funny mix, you know, it's, and it, and it, it, I think it happens in the military to this day. Senior leaders that once were junior leaders still want to do the junior leader stuff when they can. They just don't often get the opportunity. Coda is leading the advance off Omaha Beach. And it just, you can see that he just wants to be a platoon leader again. He wants to be a squad leader. I mean, he wants to get in it and he will. Coda is looking for a junior officer or NCO to lead this charge in the German position, but he can't find one. There's just troops scattered in every direction. So Coda leads the charge, grabs a handful of soldiers nearby, assault the German position, the Germans flee, and they continue their advance inland. Now, before too long, Coda would continue at the front of the attack until they reached the town of Vierville, one of the objectives on D-Day. And by 10 o'clock that morning, additional troops started to pour into town. And Coda, which you can kind of tell at this point, kind of a colorful character, looks at the soldiers coming off Omaha Beach, making their way into Vierville at about 10 a.m. And he says, quote, where the hell you been, boys? Now, the mission's not done for the day, and Coda starts to recognize that there's a severe shortage of vehicles that have made it ashore. There were supposed to be quite a few, and, and we've gotten into this a little bit before, the idea of the swimming tanks, the DD tanks that didn't make it ashore, and there were 
in follow-on waves, more and more medium and heavy vehicles that should be coming inland. Coda notices they're not. So he starts making his way back to the beach. And this, for a general, for anyone, is always an interesting deal, right? You've, you've got this momentum, you've pushed inland. It's not all secure behind you. You know, think of it like a little, little gap he cleared. Moving back through the area that he's already made it through could be a death wish. But Coda leads a patrol back to the beach. As they do so, they are fired upon by a nearby German position. So Coda and team, again, assault, overrun the position, and take prisoners. Now, time to put those prisoners to work. I'm not sure how this stands up um, in terms of Geneva Convention and, and uh, rule or rule of the law of war, but once he finds these prisoners, he has them lead his column through a minefield because the prisoners were the ones who laid them or knew where they were. Once on the beach, Coda finds what the log jam is. He sees that there's an anti-tank wall still blocking a road, and those on the beach only had a few ways to deal with this. One of those was a heavy military bulldozer that had a ton of explosives packed to it. The idea was the bulldozer could push the explosives up against the wall, detonate, clear the path for the follow-on vehicles. But if you're a soldier on Omaha Beach, do you want to jump into a vehicle that's packed full of explosives? Neither did anybody here. That was the problem. So again, Coda taking charge, yells out, hasn't anyone got the guts to drive it down? When you've got a general yelling that at a group of soldiers, you tend to have somebody volunteer. One young soldier did. To which Coda responded, that's the stuff, goddammit, get moving. The soldier brought the explosives up to the wall. They detonated, cleared the path for more vehicles to move inland, and the dog white sector continued to open up. Coda mentioned after the fact that he didn't get the soldier's name, but wished he had to be able to put him in for a medal, deservedly so. For his actions that day as the battle wrapped up, Brigadier General Norman Coda would be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, second only in Valor Awards to the Medal of Honor. I think a great way to describe what he did that day and the impact he had on the beach was summed up by a ranger captain, also on Dog White, who said, quote, magnificent leadership of men like Brigadier General Coda, Brigadier General Coda, who put their lives on the line when the chips were down. I think that's awesome. This is a general who didn't have to go ashore, and many didn't. But he found ways to get to the front, found ways to lead, found ways to motivate down to the individual soldier level. Again, let's go back to running through the mind, running through the gap in the wire after the only other person who had done that was shot dead. Nobody wanted to be the next up through that funnel. So Coda did. He didn't ask anything of these men that he wasn't already doing himself. That's awesome. As the war would go on, especially in, inside of this recognition, Coda placed all the credit on his men. Remember, he's 51 years old, landing on the beach with a bunch of 18-year-old boys assaulting the Atlantic Wall. And later on, Coda would say, quote, these young boys were, or I should, referring to the young boys, he said, quote, they were the only reason an old croc like myself could shake fear loose and roll on. Later in the war, General Coda would be promoted to Major General and command the 28th Infantry Division before retiring in 1946. And in 1971, Major General Norman Coda passed away, one of the absolute heroes of D-Day. 
Now we're wrapping up our focus on Omaha Beach. And for our final episode, we're going to dive into one of the deadliest areas that day. An entire unit would be wiped out in the dog green sector. And that's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.